He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not, does not obey the Son does not have life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. Even so, we have believed in him that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saves us by the washing of regeneration, even the renewal of of the Holy Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the um, gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Before we open God's word together this morning, let's bow our heads together in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful for all that you've given us, all that you've provided for us, and we're so thankful for your word. We know how central your word is, for our Lord said, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. It is through your word that we come to know you and love you. It is through your word that we come to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. It is through your word that God the Holy Spirit sanctifies us, sets us apart, matures us spiritually, that we may glorify you to the maximum in our life on earth. Now, Father, as we reflect upon the ministries of God the Holy Spirit today, we pray that you would give us insight into how you have worked in our lives through God the Holy Spirit, his ministries, and understand and clarify what your word teaches on the role of God the Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our study this morning is on the ministries of God the Holy Spirit today. So I'm not looking at what went on. Oh, it's time to dismiss the kids to go out. So I'll get back into the practice of that. Okay. So we will, um, we're going to look at the ministries of God the Holy Spirit today. I'm not really looking at what he did in the Old Testament, but what is he doing in the church age? That comes out of our passage that we have in Ephesians 2, both verses 18 and 22 emphasize that. But today we'll look at four. The first two have to do with what God the Holy Spirit is doing to the world as, at a, as a whole, his restraining ministry and convicting ministry. And then we will begin to look at what he is doing in the life of, of believers at salvation. And we will just uh, get, hopefully, the first two covered this morning. We may not make it all the way through the, the fourth one. In Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, we see this emphasis on how God is creating something new in this church age. In the past, the scriptures describe that there's this barrier that existed, not just the barrier between mankind and God, which is the sin barrier, but another barrier that was between the Gentiles and the Jews, the law, and that at the cross, Christ abolished the law, which is identified in the passage as the enmity between Jew and Gentile. So now Jew and Gentile are united together in Christ that it is God the Holy Spirit who places us in Christ, and we'll see that that's through the baptism by the Holy Spirit. He places us together in Christ, so we are a called a new man. We are called a new body, one new body. And in Ephesians 2.18, one of the privileges that is ours is that through him, that is through Christ, Christ's work on the cross, we both, that is Jew and Gentile, have access by one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to the Father. 
Then in verse 22, at the conclusion of the section, Paul concludes and says, In whom, that is in Christ, you also are being built together. God the Father is the one doing the construction. You are being built together for a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. Notice there's no specificity there as to whether God refers to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I believe this relates to the triune God. It involves Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are dwell in us. Now that's the basic meaning of a temple. A temple is where a deity dwells. And so we as a body of believers are now being constructed, the church, the body of Christ, the, uh, the the bride of Christ is being built and constructed through this church age that began on the day of Pentecost in A.D. 33, and it will extend until the rapture, which we pray will be soon. And But believers throughout the last 20 centuries have prayed that it would be soon. So it may not be, so we have to be prepared for whatever ever will come. And so in light of both of these references to God the Holy Spirit in this passage, I thought it would be profitable for us to step back and just review what what the ministries are of God the Holy Spirit in this age, because the Spirit is mentioned several times in Ephesians, and so we need to orient ourselves so we understand these things. Uh, this topic is one about which there is incredible confusion today. A lot of people get all kinds of strange ideas about the the filling of the Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit, uh, the indwelling of the Spirit, and as a result, they don't really comprehend what God is doing in distinctively in the church age through believers, and they don't really understand how the spiritual life Works and how the spiritual life functions. So I'm going to break this initial part down. I'm not listing everything we'll cover here, but in the hopes that we'll get through some of this today, we'll cover more next week. There are ministries of the Holy Spirit to the world today that involve, first of all, his restraining ministry, and secondly, his convicting ministry. At the time that a person trusts in Christ, there are several things that God the Holy Spirit is doing and does. At the time of faith in Christ, first, we are regenerated. That means we become a new creature in Christ. We have a new life. We move from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. Second, there is, at the same time, the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit. This is when God the Holy Spirit identifies us with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and legally places us in Christ so that our position before God is in Christ. And that makes us unique and distinct uh, believers of all ages. This will not apply to Uh, tribulation saints because they are not church age believers. This will not apply to millennial saints because they are not church age believers. This is distinctive in this particular dispensation. Then each and every believer from the instant of faith in Christ is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He takes up residence within each believer. And I believe that it is from that platform that other ministries develop, but they are also distinct. There are some today who get confused over these things and think they are all synonymous, but they are distinct, especially as we see, uh, as we'll see in our study. So we will look at the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit, which we covered briefly last time. And then we will look at his work in illuminating believers so that we can understand the things of the Spirit of God. We will look at the ministry of the filling of the Spirit. We will also look at the sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts. So this is going to take two or three weeks depending upon how how we go. 
So we begin with what the Bible teaches about the ministries of God the Holy Spirit today. And the first part of this is what the Bible teaches about his restraining. What does the Bible teach about the restraining ministry of God the Holy Spirit? Now, this is based on only one passage in Scripture. So turn with me in your Bible to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we have to look briefly at the context. Context is always so important. And the context here is talking about the uh, end times, the period known as the tribulation. This is talking about what happens after the rapture of the church with the rise of the person who is identified here as uh, the lawless one defined in the context. And I'll go back to verse uh, 2, or 1, rather. Let's just read the context. He's, he's reminding this, these believers in Thessaloniki of what had taken, what he had taught before, what had taken place before. He says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and our gathering together to him. That's a reference to the rapture of the church. Not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter. In other words, don't get uh, upset when people start identifying the events around you as the end of days. Uh, You see a lot of that today. Uh, there is a, a funny meme. If you remember just a few weeks ago, we had this big African dust cloud that blew over Houston and everything. And so it's referencing the, the dust cloud and it's represent, uh, reflecting on the plague and uh, several other things and says, uh, I always wondered what it was like to be in Egypt as God brought the plagues, but not all at the same time. People are looking at these things and saying, oh, let's go to Revelation and find out where we are in prophecy. Well, that has happened many times in the church age, and God has used that for good because it will get people's attention and maybe they'll finally figure out the truth. But at the end of the uh, 18th century, as the French Revolution has just about destroyed France, there is uh, a turning to one man who will bring order into into France, and that was Napoleon Bonaparte. And with the rise of Napoleon, his conquest of Europe uh, completed, he left France and he went to North Africa. He went to Egypt, and he began to swing up through the Middle East towards Israel. And everybody who knew their Bible went, <gasps> is he the Antichrist? He's headed towards Israel. He's conquered uh, these various nations in Europe, and it looks like we may be in the middle of the tribulation. Well, they weren't, but it got people to focus on the Word and to go back and read the Word. And one of the benefits of that was people began to realize that there was God had a future plan for Israel, and God would restore the Jews to their historic homeland. Now, there had been uh, British theologians and pastors and people who had believed that since the mid-1600s. It was known as British Restorationism, and they believed that as, they, as, as the Puritans had turned back to the Bible and had begun to work out their literal interpretation to other areas besides salvation, they began to realize that God did have a plan and a purpose for for Israel. But as things go, spirituality in a nation ebbs and flows, and it had uh, not uh, fared too well in England by the middle to late part of the 1700s, but there was something of a return to Scripture in England during the latter part of the 1700s. And so one of the things that came out of that was this emphasis on God's future plan for Israel. And so you had approximately, according to uh, J.C. Ryle, who was an Anglican bishop at the time, in the 1800s over half of the Anglican clergy were pre-millennial. And that was, that's not true today. 
I don't even think they believe in any kind of a millennium. But then they believe Christ would return before the millennium. So that's, think of a three-legged stool. That's, that is one leg of the stool is that, that uh, first of all, the first leg would really be literal interpretation. The second leg is that they believe that Christ would return before the millennium. And the third leg was now a, a firmer understanding of God's future plan for Israel. With those three things in place, you can now put the seat, as it were, on the stool, and the seat is dispensationalism. And that was systematized by John Nelson Darby in the 1830s. So we see all of this coming together. So by the time you get into the middle to later part of the 19th century, there's an understanding of God's plan and purpose for the human race within this uh, dispensational framework. Well, that's the same framework that um, that Paul had, because that is what Paul is talking about here. He is saying, don't get confused by people saying that this event or that event is somehow related to a situation in the middle of the tribulation, because we're not going to be here in the tribulation. So don't worry about that. And he concludes, verse 2, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. Now, there's debate as to how that should be translated. The root of that word is the word from which we get our word apostasia, which literally means departure. Okay, it literally means departure. Forms of that word are used to describe the departure of a ship from the harbor. There are various other places where it has that sense. And one form of the word apostasia, it, we translated apostasy. So when people see apostasia, they say, oh, that's apostasy. That's falling away from the truth. But the root is departure, and it means departure. In one context, it would mean departure from the truth. In another context, it means the departure of the body of Christ from the earth, the rapture. So this, verse 3, should be translated, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come. The day of Christ is the judgment in the tribulation period. That day or that time period will not come unless the rapture comes first and the man of sin. And so it's showing a, 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 a chronology here. First the rapture and then the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. This is a reference to the figure that we call the Antichrist. That term is only used one time, and that's in the epistle of John, First John. And so this is a reference to the prince who is to come in Daniel uh, chapter 9. This is a reference to the first beast mentioned in Revelation uh, chapter 13. So this is the Antichrist. And then we have verse 5 where Paul tells him, don't you remember the things, uh, don't you remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things. And now you know what is restraining. That's our verse here. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time, that he there is the Antichrist. So there is something restraining. And then he says in verse 7, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So this is what we see around us all through the church age is the development of this mystery of lawlessness. Mystery means the previously unrevealed truth, that there's this rise of increasing lawlessness around the world. That is what we see today. Another word for lawlessness is antinomianism. Namas is the Greek word for law. Anti is the word for against, and it means those who stand against the law. And we're seeing that so much in our day. We see many judges who just overturn 
the original intent and meaning of the Constitution. We see, uh, I have reports from judges that this slate of new uh, Democrat Party judges that uh, were elected for the city of Houston and in Harris County at the last election, uh, the statement of this one judge was when when they show up, they basically make up the law as they go along. So this is a symptom of our culture. It's not unique to Houston. It's not unique to anywhere else. We look at what has happened recently in, in uh, Portland. And the mayor of uh, Portland does not want federal troops coming in to protect the federal courthouse. That's the law dictates that federal, the federal government has to protect federal property. And so the mayor of Portland and the governor are basically saying violate the law. It's lawlessness. You see the same thing going on in Seattle and other places. They don't want the president, they don't want the federal government to apply the law. So we see this increasing tone of lawlessness, and that is a characteristic of this age. For the mystery of lawlessness, Paul says it was already at work at his time. So I'm not saying that this is a sign of the times, what we see today. It is a sign of what the trends are in the church age. And then Paul says, only he who now restrains, so there's a restraint on this lawlessness that goes beyond simply government. There are those who think that this restraint refers to government, but that it is much more than that. Uh, there is someone identified here who now restrains and will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then... So first the restrainer is taken out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed. We saw earlier in verse 3 that the apostasy, that is the uh, departure of the church, apostasia there, the departure of the church at the rapture precedes the coming of the lawless one. And here we see that the One who restrains is taken out of the way. We put that together and we see that when the church is raptured, the Holy Spirit, in terms of his active uh, ministry in and through believers, is removed from the earth. And so the restrainer of evil will no longer be present. God's going to say, okay, you want this? I'm just going to turn you over to it. I'm pulling out the Holy Spirit and the church that will no longer be present. There will be no more restraint of sin and evil and have at it. And that will lead to all of the chaos and judgment uh, that will come during the tribulation uh, period. So this is a reference to that work of, of, uh, of God, the Holy Spirit, being removed during the, the church age. This is, in some sense, typified by the role of the Holy Spirit in uh, in Israel in the Old Testament. This is an interesting passage I ran across. It is the only place that talks about this in the Old Testament, the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. It talks about the Exodus generation and says, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit when they're complaining and griping out in the wilderness that is grieving the Holy Spirit. So he turned himself against them as an enemy and he fought against them. So this is, this is, uh, uh, refers to that historical event at the Exodus, but it is also a picture of what will happen at the future when the Holy Spirit is removed from the earth, then God uh, becomes the enemy of man and he will fight against man during the tribulation period, culminating in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ when he defeats the uh, enemies of God at Armageddon. I thought I would look, throw 6311 in there for a comment. Then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people saying that he there refers to Isaiah. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit 
within them. The preposition in Greek there's, I mean in Hebrew, has a wide range, and it would be better translated among them. God dwelt among the Jews in the temple in the Old Testament. He personally indwelling them. This is talking about the presence of the Shekinah, which refers to the dwelling presence of God uh, in the Old Testament. So this passage in Second Thess 2, 6, and 7 talks about the restrainer. This is from an, an interesting verb, kateko, which refers to preventing something from being done or causing it to be ineffective. It's usually translated to prevent, to hinder, or to restrain. So it is a uh, present participle in both places indicating through the present tense this ongoing work of God the Holy Spirit who is the restrainer. And so in verse 7, this the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Incidentally, that word kateko is the same word that's used in Romans 1.18 when men reject God and they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They hold it down. They prevent it from having an impact on their life or they're suppressing it. So that's what the Holy Spirit is doing. He is holding back the forces of lawlessness. He's restraining them. And that doesn't mean there aren't going to be horrible wars. We had horrible wars in the 20th century. And that was one way that God used people to, used armies to restrain the evil of Hitler, to restrain the advance of communism in various places. Uh, The Holy Spirit uses different means in order to affect that restraining. Uh, Government is one, wars is one, individuals are another, the church as a whole, but God, as long as God has the restrainer in place, it is to enable the church to fulfill their mission of taking the gospel uh, throughout the world. So this is the first ministry we see of God the Holy Spirit, and this is this is to the world. And the second ministry that we see that is directed towards the world is his convicting ministry. So now turn with me to the Gospel of John, and we'll look at a critical passage in John uh, chapter 16. John chapter 16. Now remember, John 13 through John 16 is called the Upper Room Discourse. This was basically a teaching That's what the word discourse means. Jesus is talking, and he is teaching his disciples. And it begins when they are in the upper room. They are celebrating the uh, Passover meal, the Seder. Uh, Jesus gives that new meaning as he teaches them about using the bread and the cup in Lord's table. And then he enters into, he also kicks... uh, kicks Judas Iscariot out to go do what he's going to do. So he's left with just the 11, and he begins to teach them about the coming church age and what will be different and how it will be different once he leaves. And he tells them in John 14 that when he leaves and that it's necessary for him to leave in order that another paraclete, Comes and another means another of uh, of the same kind. So this other paraclete, paraclete is translated in some passages as comforter. That was in the King James, but it's much more than that. That really is uh, uh, narrows the concept. Paraclete has the idea of a helper, an assistant, uh, uh, someone who comes alongside to encourage and strengthen. And it summarizes uh, all of the ministries of God the Holy Spirit to the, to the believer. So there's not really one good word in English that will, uh, that will uh, translate that concept. And so he tells them, and we read the scriptures at the beginning of class about uh, the different passages where he says that another comforter will come and he will dwell in you. He will be with you and he will be in you. 
As we come to John chapter 16, this is the last part of the upper room uh, discourse. And then John 17 is Christ's, what is truly the Lord's Prayer, which is his high priestly prayer uh, for the coming church. So we get to John 16, 7 and following, and he describes this work of the Holy Spirit towards the world. He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper, the paraclete, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. So he is, uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit is dependent upon the departure of the Son to heaven where he is at the right hand of God the Father. And both in all this discourse, both the Father sends and the Son sends. So the Holy Spirit is under the authority of both Father and Son, and the Holy Spirit is sent by both. But here Jesus is saying, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he's going to do three things. He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, three things. And then he describes what those three things mean in verses 9, 10, and 11. First, sin, because they do not believe in me. I want you to notice as we look at that that he doesn't say of sins. The Holy Spirit is not convicting people of their sins, but of sin which always refers to Adam's original sin, that because of Adam's sin, uh, you have the fall into sin and the corruption of the entire human race, all of Adam's uh, descents. In Adam, all die, the Scripture says. So he convicts of sin specifically that they don't believe in me. Now, we'll come back and talk about each one of these. But the emphasis there is the sin that's the focal point is not all the sins you committed. It is failure to believe the gospel, failure to believe in Christ. Ten, of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. So it's related to the need of each one of us for perfect righteousness. And then in verse 11 of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So let's look at each one of these. Verse 8 says, when he has come, he will convict the world of sin. This word convict is an interesting word to look at. It is a future active indicative which means in the future tense, this is talking about something that will happen in the future from when Jesus is talking in the upper room. It's not happening at that time. But when the Spirit comes, he will in the future. So that begins when the Spirit comes, and we'll see that that is on the day of Pentecost in A.D. 33. So he will convict. Now, what does that mean? It has the general idea of bringing something to light, exposing something, setting something forth, convicting or convincing. These are words that are used. In Lewis Sperry Chafer's systematic theology, he uses the phrase, the convincing work of God the Holy Spirit. Most translations refer to it as convicting, and we'll see what what the issues are there. Punish or discipline. So it has a range of meaning, and like all words, you have to figure out, well, where exactly in that range of meaning should we come down? When we look at the Old Testament, which is what I put in at the bottom of this box, it has a prophetic sense. The prophets were like prosecutors uh, that came from the throne of God, and they are presenting a case against Israel for their violation of the law. And so they are convicting in that sense. That doesn't mean that they're, that the people are convinced or the people accept what they are saying, but they make a case so they understand what God's case is against them. Now the reason I make that, uh, make that distinction 
is because when we look at English dictionaries, the word convict uh, in the Oxford English Dictionary means to declare to be guilt someone to be guilty of a criminal offense by the verdict of a jury or the decision of a judge in a court of law. Now, that's the idea. It is to declare that someone is guilty of an offense. Now, when you look at the word convince, that word is probably a bad word to use to translate this. For that word, if you look it up in the OED, it means to cause to believe firmly in the truth of something. Well, does the Holy Spirit cause the world to firmly believe in the truth of something? No, he does not. And another way in which uh, OED uh, states a definition of convince is to persuade someone to do something. And that's not what the Holy Spirit, because the world isn't persuaded to do anything. So convincing really isn't a good a good term. In the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, it defines it as uh, to bring by way of argument, to bring to belief. Does the Holy Spirit bring the world to belief? No, he does not. Uh, our consent or course of action. So convincing is not really a good word. The best way to understand it is this sense of uh, establishing a case so that the person then can either respond positively or negatively to that case. And so that's the best way to understand this. So what the Holy Spirit is doing when, because bringing somebody to an understanding of the gospel is beyond my capability and beyond your capability. We don't have that power. We can present the gospel, but it is God the Holy Spirit who works in it. Uh, sometimes people get the idea that, oh, I just have to know so much uh, to be able to witness to somebody because if I try to witness to my neighbor or somebody at work, they have this objection, they have j- this that objection, and I'm just not good at, at answering all of those objections, and I just have to learn a lot more before I can ever witness to anybody. And so that is a, something that causes them to not really step out there and give the gospel to anybody. But the problem is that none of us have all the answers. Uh, Peter, in in First uh, uh, Peter 3.15, tells us that we're always to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. He doesn't say always be ready to convince the person that you're right but to be able to give an answer, to be able to clearly articulate the gospel and why you believe what you believe. But then we have a hidden asset. It's God the Holy Spirit. And God the Holy Spirit is the one who is working in their mind to make it clear. But he's not going to cause them to believe it. He's not going to go in there and flip a switch from off to on so that they will believe the gospel. They have volition. They have a responsibility to make that decision on their own. So both each of, well, each of us and the Holy Spirit are responsible for clarifying the gospel to the unbeliever. But the unbeliever still can say no can still suppress that truth in unrighteousness. And that doesn't mean we haven't done a good job. We can be the most articulate communicator of the gospel ever. Let me see. There was one like that, wasn't there? Jesus Christ came. He was the most articulate, perfect communicator of the gospel, and people rejected him, and they rejected his message. So we have to understand that we will give the gospel to a lot of people just like Jesus did, and they will think we're a fool, they'll think they'll may call us names, all kinds of things may happen. But the reality is our job is simply to say it to the best of our ability and let God the Holy Spirit do the rest, and the end result is still up to the individual as to whether they believe it or not. So what is the Holy Spirit going to be working on them? Think about it this way. 
you think about how a lot of people present the gospel and they get off onto all kinds of rabbit trails and side, they get sidetracked and they talk about this and they talk about that and they don't really understand the core issue in the gospel. We learn from this passage what the core issue in the gospel is because this is what the Holy Spirit's going to be doing. doesn't matter what you're talking about. The Holy Spirit is going to be convicting them of sin. He's going to be convicting them of righteousness and convicting them of judgment. So don't get off into all kinds of other rabbit trails because that's what the Holy Spirit's going to focus on. And so in the uh, next couple of verses, they fo- the, the passage focuses on explaining them. So in 16.8, it uh, says that he will convict the world of sin. That is further described in verse 9 of sin because they do not believe in me. So it's not talking about personal sins. And here it's not even talking about Adam's original sin because that's all paid for by Christ on the cross. Now that needs to be explained and understood that sin is dealt with. So the only issue that's left is belief in Christ. John 3.18 says, He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because of his sin? No. Because he's a drunk? No. Because he's on drugs? No. Because he's rebellious? No. It is because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. He hasn't believed in who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And because of that, he's condemned. And so the Holy Spirit is going to be convicting them of the fact that they haven't believed in Jesus Christ as their Savior who paid the penalty for their sin. Lewis Berry Chafer says, The fact indicated in this text that the one ground of condemnation is the failure to believe on Christ as Savior confirms the truth. Restated more than 100 times in the New Testament that the one and only condition of salvation is faith in Christ as Savior. Very clear. So then we come to the second aspect of the Holy Spirit's work here. He convicts the world of sin, and second, he convicts them of righteousness. John 16.10 says, Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. What Jesus is talking about here is that there has to be a faith in Christ for individuals, for any of us, to have righteousness. In this chart, we start off with a look at every human being. We're all in the box, and we all have negative righteousness. No matter how good you've been, uh, you haven't been good enough. None of us have. We have in the upper left-hand corner the character of God, his perfect righteousness and justice, and in the right we have the cross of Christ, who is perfectly righteous. Isaiah 64, 6 says that all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteousness, righteousnesses in the King James, I think, righteous deeds, so it's plural, in the New American Standard. It, It's all of our righteous deeds. It's not our unrighteousness. It's all of our righteous deeds. So we're not looking at the fact that, oh, yeah, I did a lot of things that were wrong. Well, all the things you did that were morally right and ethically good is what he's talking about, and that's just unclean. It's like a filthy garment. So none of us has perfect righteousness, and that's what God requires. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, we read, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So what happens is that Christ took on our sin, our unrighteousness on the cross, and he paid the penalty for that sin so that at the time of faith, the perfect righteousness of Christ is imputed or credited to our account. As a result of that, God the Father is going to declare us to be righteous. 
Now, we still have a sin nature, and we're still going to sin. Wait a minute. How do, let me go back through that again. We, and we still have sin, and we're still going to sin. Every believer is going to sin, and it is, uh, but God always looks at the righteousness that is ours through Christ. So he who knew no sin was made sin for us that the righteousness of God might be found in us. So this is what the Holy Spirit is convicting, that we don't have, as unbelievers, we don't have righteousness, and that we must obtain righteousness, and the only way to do that is by faith in Christ. Then we come to the third category, that is judgment, in John sixteen eight. Now, who is judged here. Well, you have two judgments on the cross. There is one judgment that is a judgment of Satan and the fallen angels and another judgment that is the judgment on sin. So the judgment involves uh, both. In Colossians 2, 14 and 15, we have both identified that at the cross... He canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That tells us when it happened. It happened at the cross. It didn't happen when you trusted Christ as Savior. It happened at the cross. That sin was completely paid for and judged at the cross. But that's not all. At the same time, verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them, having triumphed, that is, God the Father, having triumphed over them through him, that is, through Christ on the cross. So Satan is still alive and well on planet Earth. He is still active. He goes about like a roaring lion, but his doom is secure. It is secured at cross where he was judged, and because a sin problem was taken care of, Satan is left with nothing to hang on to. So those are the two ministries of God the Holy Spirit prior to salvation. Those are his ministries to the world. Now, his first ministry to us at the time of salvation is regeneration where we are born again. We receive new life. Now, we talk about this and present it usually within this chart that on the left side, we have realities that are of our position in Christ, and on the right side, the temporal realities, and we will uh, not do much with that for Sunday. So the circles indicate white are white because that indicates that we are in the light we have been made children of the light and on the right side we are to walk in the light so the first thing that happens when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ Acts 16:31 is that we are regenerated we are regenerated the term that's translated regenerated is polygenesis and that is only used a couple of times in the new testament but the concept also is related to being born again. And uh, one time it, it refers to in the regeneration, which is uh, Jesus talking about in the millennial kingdom. So that is talking about uh, the, a time in history, and the other time it's personal in Titus 3.5. But the problem, as we studied recently in Ephesians 2, is that we're born spiritually dead. A lot of people don't understand what spiritual death means, in Calvinism, spiritual death means you have no ability to do anything, and they call it total inability, which is not the same as total depravity. So Ephesians 2, 1 says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So if they are alive, then obviously they were born physically alive, but they are spiritually dead. They were born that way. Ephesians 4.18 defines it as being alienated from the life of God. It doesn't mean you're like a corpse and you can't hear anything, respond to anything, do anything. And Ephesians 4.18 says, having their understanding darkened, referring to, the, to Gentiles prior to salvation, being alienated from the life of God. Jesus he was light and in him in him was life for all men 
and he is the way, the truth, and the life. So we are alienated from the life of God. We need the life from Jesus in order to have eternal life. Romans 5.12 says that through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men. That is talking about spiritual death. 1 Corinthians 15.2 says it more succinctly, for as in Adam all die. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we are under this penalty of death. We're born spiritually dead, and unless we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we saw in John 3.18, we are condemned. Something has to happen. Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3.3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So this becomes the condition. Being born again is directly related in John 3 in passages like John 3.16, John 3.18, John 3.36 to believing that Christ is the Messiah and that he died on the cross for our sins. When that takes place, Paul describes it in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 as being made alive together with Christ. He attributes this to the ultimate cause is God's mercy and God's love. Verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with him. You are not saved because you believe. You are not regenerated because you believe. You cannot regenerate yourself. I cannot regenerate myself. I can't say, I'm going to be born again. John 1, 12, and 13 states it this way, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who, those who believe in his name, who were born. So it tells us that believing in his name, you're born, who were born, not of blood. That means it doesn't relate to their physical genetic descent. It's not because you're Jewish. That was one way in which the Jews thought that they were born again uh, at this time. Not of blood, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. In other words, you, it's not your will or the will of man. Uh, there it would mean to the will of the human race. So it's not of the will of the flesh. You can't, as spiritually dead person, will yourself to be born again. Neither can the human race create a, a corporate will that causes regeneration. Only God. God is the one who regenerates us. Now, how does that happen? Adam was created with three components, as we study. He has a physical body, he had an immaterial soul, and an immaterial spirit. There's debate by theologians as to whether man is composed of three parts or two parts. Three parts is called trichotomy. Two parts is dichotomy. Dichotomy doesn't refer to body and soul. Dichotomy refers to just an immaterial nature and a material nature. That is how theologians have defined it for thousands of years. So we have a human body and a human soul. This is clear from two passages in Scripture, and you can't refute these. Even though some of these words may overlap in other passages and may seem synonymous in other passages, it's clear from 1 Thessalonians 5.23 and Hebrews 4.12 that they are three distinct elements in, in what makes a human being. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says we are comprised of spirit, soul, and body. Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God, being living and powerful, is able to uh, pierce and divide soul and spirit. So it's used metaphorically to be able to, the word of God distinguishes between soul and spirit. Now, what happened when Adam sinned was that he died, but he didn't die physically, he died spiritually. So I have put together this uh, slide to indicate these three parts. You have human body and you have the soul comprised of self-consciousness, mentality, a conscience, and volition. This makes up who we are. And there, each component intersects 
with the other components, but those are the three separate components. And then there's another immaterial element represented by this all-encompassing circle that is the human spirit. The human spirit allows all of the components of our soul to relate to God. With our self-consciousness, we can relate to God in terms of God-consciousness, In our mentality, we can think God's thoughts after him. In our conscience, we have the values and standards of God. And with our volition, we choose to follow God and not our own sin nature. But when Adam chose to eat of the fruit and Eve before him, they lost that human spirit. It died. They no longer could relate to God through their soul. And But when they responded to the gospel, they are regenerated. They get this new human spirit, and so they are born again. They have new life, and they are now able to relate, uh, relate to God. So without it, they are, man is spiritually dead, and he must regain a spirit to relate to God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 is always poorly translated. In the New King James, it states, but a natural man does not accept the things. And if you go back to verse 9, the things always refers to that which is revealed by God, the things of God as opposed to the things of man, the things that God reveals. The word for the natural man is this word on the left, sukikos, from the Greek word suke which means soul. So it's really the soulish man. He lacks spirit. The soulish man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. They're appraised through his spirit, the pneumaticos. To confirm this, in Jude 19, we have this reference to unbelievers, the ones who cause divisions, they're worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. Again, a horrible translation. The word translated worldly-minded is the word sukikos, which means soulish. And the next phrase, devoid of Spirit, first of all, the Greek doesn't capitalize words, so it's interpretive to capitalize or not. If it's capital, it's a Holy Spirit. If it's not capitalized, it's the human spirit. And it shouldn't be capitalized because the phrase in the Greek just means not having spirit. So a soulish man is someone who has body and soul, no human spirit. That's confirmed by Jude 19, which says that that the soulish person does not have spirit. And so the only way to recover is to trust in God who regenerates us, gives us a human spirit so that we can relate to him. And notice it's always related to God's mercy. Always. Look at these passages. Ephesians 2.4, But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. His great mercy. And what does he do? And they go on to verse 5, and, and it states that, in, that he made us alive together with him. It comes from his mercy and his love. Titus 3.5, It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done. We can't do anything. We can't ever be good enough. But according to his mercy... He saved us through the washing of regeneration, and that should be translated even the renewing of the Holy Spirit. The phrase renewing of the Holy Spirit is sort of a appositional explanation of regeneration. It's renewal by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit regenerates us. We have the same emphasis in 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy again has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So in each of these passages, when it comes to this first work of God the Holy Spirit for the believer, it is due to the mercy and love of God We respond in faith, which is non-meritorious, and God causes us to be born again. He regenerates us through giving us a human spirit. Unlike Adam, we weren't born with one. 
We didn't lose one, so we're just born spiritually dead, absent the human spirit. So God then generates that at the time in which we trust in Christ as Savior. Now, there are several other things that are part of the ministries of God the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer today. The next is critical to understand, and that's called the baptism by the Holy Spirit. And we will begin there next Sunday morning. Father, thank you for this opportunity that we can come together and see all of the incredible ways in which you work in people's lives, first to bring us to salvation, and second, to give us new life in Christ and so much more. As the writer to Ephesians says, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, and these describe just a few of those blessings. Father, we pray that if anyone is listening uh, today, anyone here or anyone listening online uh, now or in the future, that they would come to understand that salvation is very simple, that Christ came to give us eternal life, and first he had to die on the cross for our sins that we might have everlasting life. We are to believe in him, as John says, again and again and again, that not believing in him, we stay condemned. But when we believe in him, we are no longer condemned, but we have everlasting life, and we have hope, a living hope, looking forward to our future with you in heaven, and we cannot even imagine all of the things that we will be doing once that occurs. So, Father, we pray that you would make that clear to anyone listening, that if they are not saved, they will know exactly how to be saved. And for those who are saved, they will have a better understanding of their salvation. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.